Welcome to Spin It. We're here uncovering the true stories behind every guest's successes and failures. This podcast is real and raw. We're stripping away the fluff and the perfectly manicured bios to get a glimpse into what it takes to be truly successful. What is your measurement of success? I'm your host, Stephanie Malik. I'm a global business consultant, coach, and crisis expert. So to say I have heard it all before is an understatement. I've seen people flip their world upside down with the slightest error in judgment, only to spin it into their most crucial and defining moment of success. On Spin It Podcast, I'm chatting with high achieving executives, athletes, and entrepreneurs to understand how they have turned their failures into fuel to help them grow themselves and their businesses. I want my guests inspiring stories of truth and authenticity to engage and impact you. We're here giving you real stories behind the headlines and to give you a glimpse of the messy reality that is success. Whether it's a hidden addiction, business scandal, an abusive family, a debilitating illness, or simply just navigating life's hardest days, we want you to learn from our mistakes. Life is all in how you spin it. Today, we're speaking with Kevin Clements, who is the Assistant Athletic Director and Aquatic Director at J. Sarah Catholic High School. Kevin is an incredible swimmer, winning a silver medal in the 2003 World Swimming Championships. He also trained alongside Olympic gold medalist, Michael Phelps. Shortly after moving to California in 2010, Kevin and his wife were blessed with the news that they would have twins. The twins started modeling and soon became Instagram famous, being named the most beautiful twins in the world by Daily Mail. In 2020, while training for the Tokyo Olympics, Kevin was diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia. His story was shared through the family's social media channels and gained national attention. On today's show, we talk with Kevin about his career in swimming and what it felt like to miss out on going to the Olympics, not once, but twice. We hear about his heroic battle with cancer and leukemia and how his family was there to support him every step of the way. Kevin's story is so inspiring, and I hope you feel as motivated and moved as I did after listening. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. We're very excited to talk with you about your journey. Thanks, Stephanie, for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I want to talk to you about your childhood first before I want to set a foundation for our listeners and just talk about, you know, kind of how you grew up. What was your relationship like with your parents and your siblings? Where were you, you know, where were you brought up? Those kind of things. Sure, sure. So uh, I grew up, I have uh, three brothers. I have two older and one younger and so it was just pretty much all boys in the house. Uh, poor mom wanted to have a girl so bad, but she got four boys instead. So, uh, so she battled through her own adversity through parenthood. But no, it was a great, loving family environment. Uh, my parents are still together today. Uh, they actually still live in the same house that I grew up in, which is crazy. These modern times right now with so much going on and just seems like it's such fast pace compared to the world that I grew up in. But no, I had a really stable household at home. Uh, I had parents that were extremely supportive. And then uh, I was the third of the four of us. And so I had two older brothers that really helped me kind of, you know, formulate my own kind of way about how to move through my life, I would say. I I think that uh, being the third, you know, and having two older brothers, you kind of have to, you know, watch your back, but at the same time, be open for observation. And so it kind of really set the stage for my competitiveness. 
which was formulated through my childhood. You know, everything was competition from, you know, eating food at the table to, you know, personal space to, you know, finding time with mom and dad. And so everything was always competition growing up. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine four boys. I have two and and I just, no matter what I do, I feel like I need a full-time chef, a full-time housekeeper, a full-time transport person because they're all in competitive sports. That's amazing for your mother must be an absolute saint. Yeah, she's a rock star. That's for sure. So tell me what drew you to swimming. Uh, Well, quite simply, I had a pool in my backyard. And so I grew up in the water, essentially. I would uh, crawl out to the pool. My mom would tell me this story. I would crawl out to the pool. My older brothers would be in the water and I just want to get in. So there, I would crawl out, literally come up onto the diving board and just fall in sit there for a second, fall in. And then she'd take me over to the side. I'd crawl back up again. I'd fall in. And, and so, uh, I just had a, uh, a passion for being in the water. I love being in the water from, you know, the time I was able to crawl. So when I first got into swimming, it was because I had two older brothers that were already in the sport and knowing as a parent, how easy it is to just have everybody do the same thing, <laughs> right. Instead of traveling from a soccer field to a baseball field to a basketball court, you know, everybody, we all did the same thing. So we all swam and then played water polo as well. Um, fast forward to high school, but that's what really got me into swimming was seeing my older brothers in it, you know? And so I joined club swim when I was six years old and a couple years later we decided, okay, I'm going to do something else. And then I did baseball for two years, but then came back to swimming again when I was about, uh, 12, so when you were doing swimming, and obviously we'll go we'll go through your career and how you how you chose to be a coach and all that good stuff. But but when you were doing swimming, Kevin, did you have a natural ability? Like, did you have a gift? Like, were coaches telling you you're, you're kind of a standout, you're different, or was it all like hard work and tenacity? Well, I think a big part of it is hard work. I mean, whenever you're looking at overall success, you know, people don't get there by accident. There's talent that plays a significant role in somebody's ability to achieve at the highest level. But when it comes down to it, it's work ethic, uh, it's commitment, it's dedication, it's that discipline factor. And I felt like with just my general upbringing, you know, having three brothers and, and creating that competitive environment at home, just on a, on a, on a minute by minute basis, you know, when I got into the water, uh, I carried that same attitude with me that idea of, okay, I, I want to be first at the wall. I don't want this guy next to me to beat me. And that was, that was in a practice situation. So I just practiced and practiced and practiced trying to race and have fun and, and, and want to win. And then that translated over to my competition. So I was pretty successful there. And I would say, yeah, I think I had a little bit of talent as well, which definitely aided in my success. But I had fantastic coaches and I really attribute a lot of my success to my coaches because just like my family environment at home that I felt was so supportive, I never had a, or came across a coach that um, was a transactional type of coach that just kind of used me for my ability and my talent. I really honestly felt like the coaches that I came across were transformational and really cared about me as a person. And that's amazing to say, especially at this standpoint of your life, that you can look back and have that transformational experience, like you said, from from each one of them, they brought something to the table. That's amazing. Tell me what made you want to pursue swimming as a full-time career? So as I said, I, I started swimming when I was about six and then eight years old or so, I didn't want to go to practice anymore. And so um, 
I still remember this conversation my mom had with all four of us at the dinner table. She said, uh, I'm, I'm sick and tired of fighting with you guys about going to practice. So I just told your coaches that we quit today. And she said, but if you think you're going to sit around here and do nothing, you got another thing coming. So you better figure out what you're going to do. And so I said, all right, well, I'll play baseball. So I played baseball for two years. And then it was 1992. I was 12 years old. It was the uh, Barcelona Olympic Games. And I was watching swimming with my mom at home. And I just got inspired. I got inspired to want to get back in the water again. And my uncle at the time, coincidentally, was also coaching uh, the same club that I had previously been a part of. And so he was encouraging me to come back even before that. But it was the 92 Olympic Games that really inspired me to get back in the water again. And then really from that point on, I just had this idea in my head that, you know, my goal was to make the Olympic team. Gosh, that's, uh, that's amazing at such a young age too. Tell me more about your swimming career after swimming at Auburn. Oh, swimming at Auburn was fantastic. I, so I grew up as a California kid, grew up in uh, um, not Orange County, but a little bit north of Orange County and swimming out in California. You know, it's obviously a hotbed for swimming and water sports. And so uh, I chose to go to Auburn all the way out in Alabama. And, you know, the reason for that was because of the success of the team out there. And when I was looking at colleges, it was 1996. 1997, 1998 was my senior year of high school. And they had just come off of winning a championship in 97. And it was their first one ever in program history. And so uh, that was one of my top schools of choice. I looked at University of Texas. I looked at USC as well. But Auburn just really stuck out to me because of that really kind of small, tight-knit community. It's very much a college town. And that just struck me. I could focus here is what I thought. You know, I could focus on swimming here. Um, I could handle my academics. There's not a lot of distractions. Uh, it didn't bother me that I was going to be away from home. And the team around me just created this brotherhood almost instantaneously, uh, even when I took my visits out there for uh, recruiting trips. And so I just felt comfortable there at Auburn, even 2,000 miles away. And so swimming at Auburn was fantastic. The coaches there, again, transformational coaches, each and every single one of them, and top-notch coaches too. The head coach was uh, David Marsh at the time, and he was, you know, multiple Olympic Games as a coach and just a fantastic leader. I've learned so much from him. I still talk to him to this day. And so, you know, Auburn for me was an experience that I'll definitely never forget. Uh, freshman year, 1999, we actually won NCAAs and we were conference champions four years, all four years that I was there. So it was a really, really elite level program that I was part of. And it was a fantastic choice on my part to leave California and go all the way out there to Alabama and, and be part of such a magnificent squad. Unbelievable. Kevin, what did it feel like for you to train for the 2004 Olympics and then literally barely miss the cut? Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up, Stephanie. That's a, <laughs> that's a good one there. Um, I told you actually, it was going to be different than anything yeah, else know, you've done, fine, right? <laughs> no, it's great. I love that. I love these questions here. So it's, it's good because this is the kind of stuff I actually talk to my team about a lot as well. Um, I'm coaching now, as you know, and 
So I, I talk to them a lot about my personal experiences because it's not just about the successes, you know, it's also about the failures and learning from those failures. And so in 2000, I was actually really close to making the Olympic team. That was my sophomore year at Auburn. And they take the top two at trials uh, to make the Olympic team. And I was third, fourth, and fifth in three events. And so that one hurt quite a bit to get third. And by seven tenths of a second, I mean, you're talking like uh, yeah. now, now. Blink your eye. Kind of That's like blink your eye. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. So, <sighs> uh, you know, I swallowed that and I, I moved on. And um, like I said, that was my sophomore year of college. And so I was 20 years old and, you know, I felt like, okay, 2004 was going to be my year then. And I made a, I made a significant move. I, I, I moved again. I moved up to uh, North Baltimore and I trained with Michael Phelps for um, just about a year and a half or so as we were preparing for the 2004 Olympic Games and Olympic trials. And I'd set myself up pretty well. The previous year, I was actually ranked third in the world in the 200 IM and uh, the second fastest in history behind Michael, of course, who was the goat for swimming. But yeah, so 2004 rolls around and um Looking back on it now as a coach, for sure, there was a lot of things that transpired before that Olympic trials that um, I, I definitely would do over again and do it differently. There was just a lot of distractions. There was a lot of things that were going on with Michael and his obligations of what he needed to do. And he was just so talented. You know, the guy, he worked his butt off, but he was also super talented as well. And so, and he was a kid at the time, you know, 17, 18 years old. I was a little more mature. I was 24. And, you know, what I needed is a little bit more stability in my environment, I think, just to allow me to have that success. And so there was a lot of travel. There was a lot of um, missing practices or, or, or reduced practice times, a lot of strength and conditioning reduction. And there was a lot of things I'm looking at now as a coach and thinking I would not do that um, if I was preparing for trials with any of my kids. And so I feel like it affected me very negatively. I, I got to that meet and it was the first meet that I had ever swam in where I wasn't excited about swimming. It was just like a really weird feeling. I actually had to stand in front of the mirror in my hotel room and I was looking myself in the eyes and I was trying to motivate myself to swim well. And, and I'd never done that before in my entire life. I had always gotten up for big meets, big competitions. I had swam at world championships, got a silver medal there. I mean, I, I had been on the stage swimming in front of, you know, nine, 10,000 people before that didn't ever bother me. I actually like relished that. It was more of the, I just didn't think that mentally I had prepared enough or was ready enough, or maybe I had over-prepared. There was just a lot of things that happened that I wasn't sure what was going on at the time, but I just did not feel good. I did not feel ready. And I had to try to motivate myself in that moment to, to swim. And unfortunately, it just didn't happen. So, Kevin, you're like the voice of positivity. Um, I've heard you speak so many times. I've actually, I want to talk about this just a little bit more. When they called it and you knew you didn't make it, 
what was the feeling? Cause I mean, I tell our listeners, like, I don't think people really understand the commitment. Tell people how many hours a week you're training. Tell people like, this is like not only a full-time job, but a full-time first and second job. Tell people the time commitment of what it is and then come back and tell me what was the emotion when they called it and you knew you were third, fourth and fifth. Yeah. Yeah. So in that year of 2000, uh, and the training environment, the training routines are pretty much the same. You know, we would swim, you know, definitely six days a week. Sometimes it would be uh, doubles three times a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we would have a morning practice from five to seven and then an afternoon practice from 3.30 to 5.30 or six o'clock. Add on top of that on those same days, another hour or so of strength and conditioning work in the weight room. You know, just trying to keep my weight on, number one, was difficult. I have a, a faster metabolism. So I'd throw down something like, you know, five to 6,000 calories a day just to try to maintain my energy levels, you know, try to get to sleep early enough so that I get about eight hours of sleep because sleep is really important in recovery. And so going into trials that year in 2000, where I did end up getting third, it was kind of unexpected in that specific event. It was the 200 IM. I was really looking more for the 400 IM and that was my uh, second event that I swam and I got fourth place and I thought, okay, well, m- maybe this isn't the year for me then. And I, I kind of fast track, I started to look forward already to 2004 because I was only 20 years old. And so I thought, okay, when I'm 24, maybe I'll be in a better position. But that third place finish, as I said, I actually finished that race and I thought, okay, you know, this, that was awesome. I did a best time. I, you know, I accomplished almost everything that I set out to accomplish at this trials in 2000. And then, you know, it hit me almost about 10, 15 minutes after that race finished where I just came way down and I started to feel like, oh my gosh, I just missed out on an opportunity here. I was so close to making the team and I'm third and I'm sitting home and I'll watch the Olympics again from home on my couch. You know, what actually helped me get through it was at that time at Auburn, there was five of us that got third place that year. And it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. We had a few make it, but there was five of us that got third and all five of us had thought that, you know, we were going to make it and at least had that idea in mind that we were going to make it. 2004 was was interesting because it was a, a it was a different setting and you know training with Michael and and going back to club swimming instead of swimming at the college level and uh, uh, and the practice times were were expanded we did seven days a week so we were always swimming I never felt like I had any sort of social life or anything like that it was just business business swim 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 same routines they would wake up in the morning go to practice eat breakfast take a nap, wake up, eat lunch, try to stay awake, go to practice in the afternoon, go eat dinner, go to bed. And it was just like the same routine over and over and over again. But there was travel too. That's the, that's the part of swimming that I look back on now is, is the travel element of it all where I've been to 13 different countries because of swimming. And I've had such a fantastic experience with swimming but definitely in 2004, and just in that moment, I felt like there was that opportunity that I just missed. And it took a while. That one hurt the most 
because of everything that I had done to set myself up to try to make that team. And the year before in 2003, having been third in the world in the 200 I am is it ranked as an athlete feeling like I got this, you know, second in the nation right now, I got this, I'm going to do this. And then coming after that, me and, and, and coming home, I, I did kind of like pull myself away from a lot of people at that time. You know, I, uh, uh, I had a lot that I had to uh, work through on my own. And so, you know, what I ended up doing was uh, I, I really just, I, I got into coaching like almost right away. I got into, you know, small time coaching. I coached a summer league team and I just kind of moved through that. I had, had actually met my wife uh, about three months prior to trials that year in 2004. So, you know, I had a new relationship with her as well. And, you know, so that kind of helped a little bit to try to deflect, but there was still a lot that I was going through internally. And then even through coaching, it was really tough because, you know, I coach these kids and I just feel like I would say things to them that, um, you know, I felt like we're very transactional and not very transformational and, and just kind of maybe beating myself up over it and trying to still work through all these different emotions that I had at the time and not really doing the coaching or, or inspiring the kids or mentoring the kids the way that I do now. But there was a good stretch of about, I would say, a year or so where I just felt like I wasn't myself. And so when you, when you took on these coaching jobs, like you said, you moved, you moved through it. Did you, was it intentional? Were you thinking ahead where you're like, Hey, I always want to be, I knew I always wanted to be a swim coach. Were you thinking like that? Did you always want some aspect or element of coaching or did you just go, Hey, this is what I know. I need a mental break. This is what I need to do. Coaching just, I kind of fell into it, to be honest with you. I didn't really think past swimming, uh, personally in my career, uh, at the time. So even through 2004, I just never thought that one, I wasn't going to make the team. And then two, I just thought I was going to go for another four years. So I, I looked at my swimming career as in 2004, I'm going to go another four years and I'll swim until 2008. And, uh, and when 2004 had the results that it did, I just made that decision right then and there. Just, I don't know if I want to do this another four years again. You know, I missed it in 2000. I missed it in 2004. And so I just pulled the trigger and I said, you know what? I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop right now. And I think that was a mistake on my part. I think I should have swam maybe for a little bit longer and just kind of see what would have transpired. But even so, looking back on it now, coaching, I always knew I wanted to be around swimming. That was something that I, that's the reason why I fell into coaching with swimming is because swimming offered me so much. And I just wanted to try to give back a little bit. Kevin, tell me about Jackie and how you guys met and how that relationship transpired. And then you take me back to you guys moving back to California. Sure. So, yeah. So Jackie and I, as I said, we met about three months or so before uh, trials in 2004. And I was just swimming every day, as I said, about seven days a week, no social life. It was about that time that I just decided, you know what, I need to be able to get out. I'm <laughs> 24 years old. I need to be able to get out of the house every once in a while, go out, enjoy myself, and not focus so much on swimming all the time because I felt like I was getting into this rut. And so Jackie coming into my life was 
that perfect inspiration for me to kind of free myself of of just the constant thought about swimming and just the everyday monotony of just getting up, going to bed, swimming, eating, all that kind of stuff. And I had always had that in my life. You know, when you go to college, you have that, right? I mean, you have these distractions that are not necessarily distractions they're healthy distractions because it keeps you away from, you know, overthinking about things. And so we met and it was great at first, you know, it was, it was great. And then, and then you go through that rough time where you're like, do I really like this person? And, uh, and, but no, we stuck with it, you know, we stuck with it. And actually, um, I still had another year of college left because of my swimming. I, I kind of took the, the lower credit role. I didn't take the maximum number of credits. I took the minimum number of credits every single year. And then there was a couple semesters where I was traveling for meets. So I took those semesters off. So even though she was uh, two and a half years younger than me, uh, we graduated at the same time. So, wow, um, that's kind of cool. It, it was pretty cool. It was pretty yeah. cool. But I went back to Auburn and she was up in Maryland. And so for a year, that one year, after only dating for about four months, the whole next year was a long distance relationship that we held on to. And she'd fly down to Atlanta and I'd go drive over to Atlanta and I'd pick her up and I'd make the hour and a half drive back. And then she'd stay in Auburn with me for the weekend. And then I'd drive her back on Sunday night and then she'd fly back up there. And, and that took, that happened, you know, quite a few times over that year. And then after that uh, graduation, we just made the decision, you know what, let's go up to Maryland. And so we went up to Maryland because she's from New Jersey and it's about an hour and a half away from her family. And so uh, I knew I wanted to be with her. And that was, that was my, my main priority was, okay, I'm going to stay with this one. So then we moved up there and I got a job at University of Maryland and um, coached there for three years. And then just the way that the job goes when you're an assistant coach, if the head coach leaves, you're most likely gone. So the head coach left. And so I looked for other opportunities. And it was right around that time that uh, we had my first uh, chase. We had my son. And so he was only a few months old. And I got another job at uh, LSU. So we went all the way down to Louisiana. And then we were there for two years, Louisiana. It was a good experience, you know, and, and the team was a little bit better. So I was able to coach some better kids. And then uh, the doors opened up to go to USC and I took that job there and that brought us back to California. And since being back in California again, you know, Jackie's loved every moment of it. We're, we're not going anywhere else. It's just too nice out here. And for me, it's back home and it's close to family and it was a great experience, you know, being able to coach at USC and coach those Olympians and had the privilege to go to the 2012 Olympic Games in London as a coach. Wow, that's incredible. So you move back to California. Everybody's happy. You have little Chase. And then you have these incredible baby girls that are so beautiful. But like, I will say a big giant but you go from one child to three children immediately. What was that like? That was very challenging, I would say. I don't know how it would have happened if we would have had the girls first and then would we have had more kids? I don't know. But that having those two and having a family now of five, that made our decision to just say, okay, we're going to end it. <laughs> we're not going to have any more after this. 
but it, it was rough. Uh, Jackie is more on the petite side. I'm six, four, she's five, four. And so having twins and carrying that load, uh, it really put a toll on her body. She was on bed rest for the last four weeks of pregnancy. And, you know, I was traveling a lot, you know, for coaching and recruiting. And our son was only two at the time when the twins were born. And, you know, I noticed, so here's the thing about being a a parent is, you know, you go through your life and you're just learning from your own experiences, right? I mean, you could, you could take advice from other people, but at the end of the day, nobody's family is the same. So I didn't realize the toll that, you know, having two babies at the same time was taken on our son. And I think it was around the time he was about four years old. That's the time I transitioned from coaching college to now coaching at JCR Catholic High School. I noticed, I observed him and his, just his attitude change. He had this kind of this mood change where he was the only child, you know, for two years, he got all the attention. And then all of a sudden now we had two babies and, you know, when Jackie had a baby in her arms, I had another one in my arms. And so I could kind of see this transition in his mood from being this really happy, kind of easygoing kid to all of a sudden, it almost looked like to me, you know, where's my place? And so that was when I really decided I don't want to be away from home anymore. And so I I need to take a job that I'm going to be around more often so I can give him a little bit more attention because he was only four. And so, so uh, little, just yeah, so little yeah. and not knowing what's going on and, you know, what's his place and how does he fit in? And gosh, wow, that's incredible. So your twins are now famous on social media and they were named the most beautiful twins. What was it like to watch them on social media and seeing them gain so much traction so quickly? Yeah. So Stephanie, so that's so crazy because I mean, that was not our intention when we started putting up their pictures on Instagram, right? So we got them into modeling uh, when they were seven years old, actually. It was uh, their birthday, uh, July 7th, and it was 2017. And so Jackie has this uh, weird sort of connection with numbers and stuff like that. So it was like seven, seven, 17. And she's like, it just seems right. You know, let's just do this. Let's go into modeling with the girls. And, you know, we talked to them about it a little bit, but they're seven. So they're going to kind of say, okay, well, what do you think, mom? What do you think, dad? And I say, yeah, let's do it. You know, so we started off on a good note. You know, we had a lot of fun doing it, you know, did some auditions, did some pictures, but just really used Instagram to just show their work. It wasn't let's use Instagram to grow a social media profile. It was more like, okay, we're going to use this as a portfolio piece so that other companies can look at it and and decide whether or not they wanted to hire them for modeling. And so um, once we started putting up pictures, it was within about a month, maybe a month and a half, all of a sudden they had 160,000 followers. And we, we were had no idea. We were so ignorant to social media and to Instagram and how many followers were good or anything like that. And until we started getting contacted by different, you know, news channels and they wanted to reach out and they wanted to, you know, get a story. And and then all of a sudden this article anonymously came out that dubbed them the most beautiful twins in the world. 
And it was something that um, Jackie had been doing all these blogs. So she was doing that to start as well when we first put them into modeling. And they pulled a lot of things from that blog to help write this article. So just like kind of my story with swimming and the history there. And then what, you know, she's going through as a mom going into modeling for the first time with their kids and kind of the battles that are associated with that, with auditions and traveling and, you know, just preparation and, and also school, you know, so there was a lot of people think it's so, so glamorous. People just only see the front page. They don't see all the work and all the things that happen on the back end and how not glamorous it is so much of the time and how hard the work is. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. And and that's why she was putting up that blog to just kind of express herself a little bit and, and kind of release a little, but also in an attempt to, you know, I would say help those that are kind of going through the process as well, just something that they can reference. And so when that article came out, it was a weird article because all of a sudden I was getting contacted by uh, people that I've known for a while saying, Hey, I just saw your daughters on this Google search. You know, uh, this popped up as I was searching the internet, just popped up in this screen down below the search bar. And it was this article saying most beautiful twins in the world, most beautiful girls in the world. And it was just something that we were totally unaware of, but that really catapulted their, I would say, stardom, I guess, in going from that 160,000 followers. And then over the next month, they were up to like 200, 300,000. And then within the year, they were up over a million. This week's spinach shout out goes to Armando. Armando says, love how Stephanie presents her podcast. She's such an inspiring soul and human being. Thank you so much, Armando. Your feedback means the world to me. Do you wanna generate 50 to $75,000 of revenue you never even knew was there? It's time to scale your business to a new level with Scale OS, led by me, Stephanie Malik. I can help you get your business to seven figures because here at SME, we've done it before. In fact, numerous times. When you sign up for Scale OS, I will work with you and nine other business owners to give you a personalized roadmap to success. I will help you learn how to tap into other avenues of revenue with sustainable methodologies that will allow you to scale your business. And after this program is done, you will have a renewed passion and drive for what you do. Find out more by going to stephaniemalik.com forward slash scale OS. So you started training again for the 2020 Olympics and something just was not right. Walk me through how you're diagnosed with cancer, even after being in really good shape from swimming. And I want to touch on this a little bit more. I want to elaborate. So many people believe that it's, you know, bad food and environment and kind of everything else. And I, and I absolutely believe that without a shadow of a doubt. When you see someone like you who takes every precaution, who is so in tune with their body, like in tune with their muscles, in tune with their mindset, in tune with every single thing. And you preach positivity so much and you only preach it, you act it. And then something just doesn't feel right. What happened? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, okay, the, that's, that's the question that I ask myself. It's like, what happened? Because the way you described it is exactly right. You know, I, I made sure that when I decided to get back in the water again and start training, 
that I, I took that same path that I had taken back when I was in college and I was really serious about swimming and trying to make the Olympic team back then. I made sure I got proper sleep. I made sure my diet was was great. I made sure that, you know, I was I was practicing and I was giving it my all in practice, um, balancing that home life now with a family as well. And I was making it work. I had been mulling over the decision for a while, though. It was about three to four months or so throughout the summer. I was thinking, yeah, maybe I should get back in. I should try to, you know, let's see what happens. You know, I got a year to go and and let's see what happens. And so you know, for about three to four months, I was going back and forth with whether or not I really wanted to do this. And then I just decided in September that at the beginning part of September, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this happen. We're going to see what I can do. And I didn't know if I was going to, you know, make the Olympic team at that time. I'd been so far removed from swimming. There was so many years there where I had done really not much of anything in terms of training. But my idea was, I want to try to make trials, and I think I can, and I'm just going to go to trials, and then we'll just see what happens. We'll see how this all unfolds. And so for uh, I made that decision in September, and so then for those six weeks, I just go, got right back into everything again. I was swimming six days a week. I was adding in weight training on top of that. I was eating well. And so there was nothing that I was doing even before that, though. It's not like I was living this unhealthy lifestyle. Right? I mean, I was I was working out and, and it wasn't as consistent as I was the six weeks before I got sick. But it was, you know, I, I'd be lifting weights. I, I was swimming here and there. I was eating OK. Nothing that I would say like, oh, yeah, put a finger on it. I was eating, you know, McDonald's every day or fast food or just greasiness. And I wasn't doing anything like that. And I don't have a history of this in my family at all either. So for me and, and looking back on it and even after the initial diagnosis i'm, I'm very faith-based and so i have a feeling that god kind of helped me to make that decision by saying you're going to be going through something here pretty soon so you need to get in shape for it and that was that back and forth that i had all over the summer i didn't know if i wanted to pursue swimming or not and i was fine with where I was. And then all of a sudden I made that decision for some reason, beginning of September. And for six weeks, I'd put in the work and I was in really good shape. And then right after I swam my first competition of getting back in shape again, and I did really well, I got sick. And so I, I look back on it as um, almost like a blessing in a way, which is so weird to say. No, no, like I don't blessing. think so at all. And it's yeah. not like you're some slouch. It's not like you're laying on the couch eating bonbons. I mean, you're still great in great, great shape. But that six weeks probably gave you an incredible, incredible push. When you say you got sick, what did it look like? You were just like laying there and just didn't feel good or what happened? It looked like a common cold at first. And then it looked like the flu, according to my doctors. But it was weird. It was it was something that I had never experienced before because you know, I, I had a sore throat. I had a little bit of a cough. I had the stuffiness. That was kind of that cold onset of what I first experienced in terms of my symptoms. And then it was one, it was a Saturday morning. It was about five o'clock in the morning. And I, I, I had woken up because I felt like my heart rate was racing. And it was. And, it, and I, I tried to calm down. I tried to calm it down, but it was still going about 80 beats per minute. 
And so for me, being in really good shape as I was, I was under 60 beats per minute, especially resting, sleeping. You know, I was in the low 50s, mid 50s, you know, at the highest. And so when I woke up that morning, five o'clock in the morning, I woke myself up from this elevated heart rate. And I immediately looked at Jackie and I said, hey, something's not right. Like my heart rate is way up. So she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I, I don't know. I think I need to go to the doctor. So this was after maybe three or four days of feeling those cold-like symptoms, you know? And then so we went to the emergency room. I got the full workup. I got the chest x-ray. I got the EKG. I got, you know, the blood work, the panel, spectrum, every, all that kind of stuff. And it was just at that point in time, it was just diagnosed as the flu. I said, okay, it seems like you just have the flu. Everything looks right. You just have an elevated heart rate and that's a symptom of the flu. And I was like, okay. But for me, it didn't seem like the flu because every time I had gotten the flu before, I was always nauseous every time. So I don't know if it's just that that's how my body processes it, but this just did not seem like the flu to me. I was experiencing everything that a flu would give you, except I didn't, I wasn't nauseous and I'd always had been. So about a week goes by and uh, I did the TheraFlu stuff and I did like the, the Z-Pack for the flu, right? I can't remember what sort of prescription that was, but I got a prescription for it. And I, I went through that whole week's worth of stuff and I felt better towards the end of it. But as soon as I finished off that five days worth of medicine, all the symptoms just started rolling back again. You know, my fever started coming back. My fatigue started coming back and uh, went to the doctor again. And they just said, well, sometimes it takes two weeks or so to get through the flu. And again, I just thought this is not the flu, like something, something else is wrong, you know? And so two weeks after that initial elevated heart rate that woke me up in the morning on Saturday morning, I was laying on the couch and and it was in the fall. So I was watching some football and it was on Saturday or sorry, Sunday. And, um, I remember telling Jackie, I said, you know, I just don't feel great. I'm going to try to take a nap. And I'm just going to lay here and I'm just going to try to go to sleep. And I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because my heart rate was pumping even faster than 80 beats per minute. And I took my pulse and it was at like a hundred, just sitting there, just resting, not having done anything, trying to take a nap. Gosh, Kevin, that's crazy, especially for an athlete. Yeah. That's insane. It was crazy. It was crazy. And so and so I turned to Jackie again and I said, Hey, something's not right. I, it's a hundred. And so we went back to the hospital again and we did the full workup, same deal as before, you know, blood work, chest x-ray, EKG, everything. But this time on the chest x-ray, they noticed that I had a little bit of fluid in the lungs. And so, um, the doctor at that point said, okay, I, I want you to go get an MRI. And so we were like, okay. And she said, uh, uh, just to check to see if there's any, you know, aneurysms in your lungs, you know, we want to rule that out because you've been sick for a long time. You've been coughing a little bit. And we just want to make sure there's not that, that fluid is not blood. We want to make sure of that. And so I said, okay, that makes sense to me. Let me go get an MRI. And, uh, I got the MRI and she said, uh, after the MRI, I just want you to wait there outside the room. There's a phone there. And I'll call you with the results because I want to look at this right away and I want to call you with the results right away. So did the MRI, walked out the door, waiting in the room with Jackie uh, right by the phone. 
about 30 minutes later or so, the phone rings. I pick it up and it's a doctor on the phone. And she says, um, well, good news. You don't have any sort of aneurysms. Your lungs look fine. There's just some fluid in there, but that's just fluid from slight pneumonia and stuff. And she says, but my concern is that you have this extremely large mass in the center of your chest. And I, I get the chills right now just thinking about it. I just got the chills everywhere when you said that. <laughs> Gosh. It was this... Um, this moment of silence after that, of trying to process what that meant, what she said. And she said, um, shortly after that, I need you to walk down the hall. I need you to check yourself into the hospital immediately. And I just thought, what is going on? Because for my entire life, 39 years old now, and for my entire life, I had been healthy I had been at the top of at the peak of my performances as an athlete. I wasn't a junk food crazed guy um, doing everything right, you know, everything in moderation as well. Never anything indulgent. And so for me, this was just like this can't be, you know. This what what do you mean? I have something in there. And so then I went to go down and I and I, and I checked in. And so you you have to deliver that message to your wife who's standing next to you. Yeah. Well, she, it was on speaker. Oh, so she heard the whole thing at the same time as me. And it was, so yeah, so we walked down, we checked in and then, and then it was a weird experience going through that because I check in, I go into the hospital. They obviously do a biopsy on it. The mass in the center of my chest, unbeknownst to me, was 11 centimeters by seven centimeters by seven centimeters. So this thing was about as big as my fist and it was sitting right in the center of my chest. It was putting a lot of pressure on my heart. It was, that's why my heart rate was elevated. Uh, there was a bunch of fluid surrounding my heart. There was fluid in and around my lungs. And then, you know, the funny thing is, is, is you look back at the first X-ray and you can actually see it there. But because of your sternum right in the center of your chest and because of where your heart is situated, it was somewhat blocking it. It wasn't until you looked at the MRI um, that was able to look kind of past those things to be able to look at those and see that mass. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just thinking about it right now just kind of gives me like a pause of thought because I just it, it was such a a weird and surreal moment. That's just, like I said, I followed it. So whatever you guys shared on social media, I followed it so closely. And I was always thinking about you and Jackie's overall positivity, but the initial shock must've just been, I mean, how do you prepare for something like that? Like there's no, those are stories you read about. Those are not something that happens to your family when you take being very respectful when you take such good care of your health, when you take so such good care of your energy. You know, I told you about my husband and I told you about what happened with him. And I remember thinking back about, he was so angry. He was angry because he had had people in his life that had been full-time drinkers, 20, 30, 40 beers or tons and tons of cigarettes. And, you know, they were walking around, find it 70 and 80 years old. And he was like, I just don't get it. And so that shift in mindset was really, really hard. What did it look like mentally and physically for you to fight this disease? You first and then Jackie and the family. Yeah. So 
when we, when we finally got the diagnosis after the biopsy, after, uh, you know, the bone marrow biopsy too, which is no fun to find out that I had lymphoma from the tumor in my chest and then leukemia as well. So the cancer had actually traveled into the bloodstream to have those two separate forms of cancer for me mentally, it's hard to even talk to you about the position that I was in or how I was going to approach it because it was just so shocking. It is like exactly as you described, Stephanie, it's those stories that you read about, but you can't put yourself in those shoes. And so even though I was going through it, I still felt like I can't put myself in those shoes. Like I, I don't even know how to respond to this. I don't know how to react to what to do next now. And so I did kind of, I feel like what I've always done with swimming is I, I put a lot of trust into my coaches when I swam. And so I just put a lot of trust into my doctors and I just allowed them to help me through the process and educate me through the process. And we started up with chemo right away. It was as soon as that diagnosis came back and it was positive for those two cancers, we started up with chemo right away. And I just signed the papers and I said, let's do it because that seems right. You know, if you have cancer, you can do chemotherapy. And, you know, Jackie and I had, you know, done our research as we were going through this whole thing. And uh, we were trying to see what other people have done. And there's all of these miracle cases of people that avoid chemotherapy and then the cancer goes away, you know, kind of thing. And I just thought that the way that I had always lived my life was to respect other people's opinions, you know, process that myself, make my own decision on it. But at the end of the day, I felt like this was a decision that I needed to make to where I needed to stay in the hospital and I needed to go through the, the procedure of getting chemotherapy and, and get that medicine in my body to try to get rid of this thing. And obviously, you know, the, the emotional toll that it took on me within those first probably three to four days was the worst of, of it all. You know, I, I had cried and, and I had, you know, had that emotional roller coaster of feeling like, okay, I, I, can, I can do this, I can do this. And all of a sudden you break down again. And, you know, it's like an hour by hour kind of basis. And then being there with Jackie, it was kind of the same thing. I mean, her and I have very similar mindsets and outlooks on, on life, which is why we were so compatible with each other, you know, been married now for 16 years. So we had the same approach and, and she was just as shocked as I was. And the toll that it took on her was tremendous because here I am in the hospital and I'm just, I'm battling through what I'm going through, but I'm putting trust in the doctors and really kind of believing like, okay, well, the chemotherapy is going to work, right? Like it's going to work. But on her end, it's that same old story of you just read about these things, but you never live through them. And so she's living through it now with that fear, that total fear of, I can't believe my husband has cancer and, and, and what's going to happen now. And, and how am I going to do this with three kids all by myself? Yeah. And then still having to be somewhat stoic, not that she didn't show emotion because I'm sure she did, but making the kids believe that there's hope, there's positivity, you know, dad's going to make it out, you know, we're going to do this. And then probably having her own personal fall apart moments and then being there to support you. And I'm sure your parents, it's just a really, really all encompassing tragedy. And your mindset in this was 
just incredible, Kevin. Tell me about the bone marrow transplant and, and about your brother. So it was after my second round of chemotherapy and it was, um, it was around Christmas time, about two weeks before Christmas. And I was set to go back for my third round of chemotherapy. And this was going to be 12 rounds of chemotherapy. It was going to, it's going to last somewhere between two to three years. And it was at that point in time, it was decided that the best course of treatment was for me to get a bone marrow transplant. And so we did our bone marrow drives and DKMS did a fantastic job of helping us with providing all the swabs and everything. Um, blessed that we had the social media following that, you know, my girls had because we were able to get the word out there and get the biggest swab donation that DKMS has really ever seen. We had over 3,500 people come out and swab just in that one event. Because of that event, we had three people that I know of from that event that were matches for other people. So we've had, yeah, we had three people from my event that I put on, that we put on for me to get me a match are now matches for other people are going to save those people's lives. So that's, that to me is just, that's why it was so worth it. And, and that's why it's hard for me to look back on, on this whole experience and think negatively about it. Because even laying in the hospital bed and going through that emotional, yeah, I, I went through the why kind of thing, but I tried not to dwell on that. I tried to look at it as a positive and, and how I can get through this and the battles that I've overcome before and what can I do now. But I was just getting contacted by people I haven't heard from since high school, reaching out saying, hey, you know, we're in support of you. And just the outpouring of love uh, and support for me was so overwhelming I just honestly so felt so blessed through the whole process that I immediately had this positive outlook on things. And, and Jackie was fantastic because Jackie's just a researcher. She just constantly is like, you know, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. How can we get through this? What are some different things that we can do? So the alternative side of medicine as well, right? The, the meditation, the faith base, the, you know, the praying, really getting connected with God, you know, also, you know, just being supported by family, but the inspirational videos that I watched of people that had actually gone through really tragic injuries in their own right, not cancer, but this one in particular, I can't remember the guy's name now, but I saw YouTube of him where he got in an accident where his whole vertebrae was shattered. And doctors said, you're never going to walk again. You're probably going to be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of your life. And he didn't swallow that. He, he, he didn't take that as an answer. He instead decided, I'm not going to have the surgery because it's, it's risky and, and I could lose my life. I'm just going to kind of do this on my own. And so he did his own research about how the mind can heal the body. And he's giving this interview, sitting up in a chair, and he had healed himself. He had healed himself with his mind. And so I looked at that and thought, I can do the same thing. I can do the same thing. And so I started visualizing as he did, visualizing his vertebrae coming back together again and healing itself in, a, in an image that he saw, you know, with anatomy and looking at the image and going, that's how my spine should look. This is how I'm going to make it look with my own mind. I started envisioning this tumor that I had in my body of getting uh, broken up and dissolving like cell by cell. And I just really took hours and hours of doing that. I, I did the same thing with my leukemia, knowing it's embedded in the bone marrow. I, I 
did the same thing there where I was thinking that the bone marrow was getting washed out and constantly the cells were getting, you know, dissolved and everything was getting replenished with new and healthy material. And I just kept doing that over and over and over again throughout the whole process. And it was uh, even after my first round of chemotherapy, I was already in remission. And so fast track now to the bone marrow transplant, my brother I didn't have any matches. There's 13 million people in the in the database and I didn't have any matches. And so, you know, we tested my brothers and I have three of them and there was a good strong possibility that one of them would be a full match for me. And my second oldest brother came back and he was a not even a half match. He was like a quarter match. And then my youngest brother came back and he was no match at all. And so my oldest brother, thank God, he was a half match. And he matched on the um, on the markers that mattered the most in terms of like the genetic code and and you know what I needed, and so even though he was a half match, he was a much better choice than somebody for me who was like a nine out of ten, that was not a sibling, not a not a relative, and so we decided to proceed with that, and we went to the bone marrow transplant, and um, we did that in February of 2020. I can only imagine just the aftermath of not, you know, one cancer, because that's not awful enough, but two cancers, physically fighting the cancer and mentally fighting the cancer and still trying to maintain your mindset. How have you been able to recover as far as mentally? Like, this is so traumatic and it's so big and like PTSD. You know, you're like, I have a cold, I have a flu, I can deal with that. And then all of a sudden you're fighting two cancers. How do you and Jackie recover from that mentally? How are you feeling when you go get those scans and when you're going through those next tests? What's going on for you? Yeah, so um, all the tests, all the scans, all the bone marrow biopsies, you know, they drill into your hip. They extract your bone marrow. I had several spinal taps. That's where they put a needle into your spinal cord and they extract fluid to see if you have cancer in there. Every single one of those, there's just anxiety surrounding you and beforehand, during, after the fact, waiting for the results, waiting for the results. Eventually, you kind of get numb to it because there's only so much you can do. And again, so much of my approach to all of this, it's a testament to what I had been doing the 20 years plus beforehand in terms of swimming and, and how I was able to battle through those different things, because you learn that you control the controllables. And these were things that I couldn't control. I just controlled my own pain levels at that time. I controlled my own anxiety as much as I could at that time, but I couldn't control the results. I couldn't control the outcomes. I can only control what I was doing with my body and trying to feed my body the best, healthiest material as possible, um, not only just from food, but also mentally, and then trying to get closer to God and, and really, you know, build myself up in terms of faith and spiritually to just really expand upon just my personal being, really. Uh, I, I wanted to make myself into a better person because of this, you know, and it's not like I, I, I feel like looking back, like, oh, I was a horrible person before this. So that's the question I get to is like, well, how have you changed? And I would say I haven't changed much. You know, I haven't really changed much at all. I, I always felt like I was a pretty good person before this all happened. 
And, uh, and so I feel like I'm kind of the same person, but now I have, now I have this additional story that I battled through, but, but Stephanie, the, the PTSD is, is a big part. I mean, it is a, it is a huge part of it because, um, about a month ago or so when we did go out to New York, I had gotten sick right before we left and I took a COVID test. It wasn't COVID, you know, it was just a mild, uh, cold, but it's kind of one of those things where I look at that and go, okay, this is not going to get worse. This is just a cold. I'll be fine. But of course, Jackie looks at it and goes, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And she's, she's constantly asking me all the time. So I know that there's a, a good deal of PTSD there. And, you know, I, I went to the doctor today, actually, uh, ear, nose and throat doctor, because I had been battling for about a year or so this graft versus host disease in my mouth. And what that is, it's, it's that bone marrow transplant that I got from my brother and those cells that I have now, those stem cells that I have working through my bone marrow that are, that are producing my blood, my antibodies and in everything that makes you function. Sometimes they don't agree with the host body, right? Or, or my host body doesn't agree with those cells. So there's a battle here and there. And, and so the battle, luckily for me, hasn't been anything too severe, but just a couple um, sores in my mouth. And uh, I went to the ear, nose and throat doctor today and, and, and I go into it just kind of a quick thought runs by my head. I hope she doesn't find anything. Right. I hope she doesn't find anything. And, 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 and I remember going to the doctor when I was super healthy and just always thinking, I'm just going in for a checkup. Right. So it's just routine. Big, just routine. Know? So that's, that's where that PTSD is still kind of evident. I don't think about it all the time, but I do think about it in these moments where it's like, okay, I'm going to go get my blood work done next week, you know, for another appointment that I have to check in with my oncologist. And, you know, there's certain things that I'm going to get tested, like my thyroid and my liver and my kidneys and, and things like that. And there's been blood levels that have been very, very slightly elevated, nothing, nothing to be concerned about. But when I get those tests back, I always look and see, okay, did I go up in this level? Did I go up? You know, and hopefully it's not, but it's just that, that constant just reminder of getting through it, I guess. Right. So we're running out of time, but I wanted to definitely mention Jay Sarah swimming. I mean, the diving program has broken 33 school records, three CIF state records since you started in 2014. What would you say that your secret sauce is for this incredibly successful coaching? Secret sauce. It's a good question. Uh, I wish I did have a secret sauce. Uh, that's kind of what I tell my athletes all the time. I wish I had magic dust. I could just sprinkle on you and make you a fantastic athlete, but I don't. You know, I think it's the uh, it's the trends that I'm trying to um, impart upon my own athletes, which is, you know, the transformational coaching that I received in, in my own swimming career. So, you know, I try to treat them as a person and not just a commodity so that, you know, they understand that, you know, their success, their overall success and how it uh, affects the, the cultural environment and the camaraderie that we have with the team and their individual success and how they carry themselves, it makes more of a significant impact than it does in their performances. So, you know, I mean, swimming fast is great, but swimming fast just for yourself and, and not inspiring other people to do the same is a loss. 
And, and so that's really how I coach the kids that I, that I have the privilege of coaching is to help them to understand that um, they can make an impact on other people um, and they can make an impact on other people every day in, in, in every single way, whether it be in a practice setting or in a performance setting or even just, you know, inviting somebody to go to lunch with them after practice. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things that I try to build upon more than anything, because at the end of the day, Sports is about relationships. It's about building those and fostering those relationships and, and creating leaders and mentors. And, you know, when you can do that, then you have a fantastic team around you. So, Kevin, you know our entire show is based around obstacles and opportunities as, as if we haven't covered enough. What's the biggest obstacle that's happened to you thus far in life that you've been able to turn into an opportunity or a blessing? Um, diagnosed with cancer. Yes, I would say that that's the biggest one right there. <laughs> You're like, that's where we are, Steph. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it. That's, that's the one that comes to mind. But, you know, I, I, I looked at it as an opportunity even from the beginning because, you know, when I was going through it, I was visited by a few people that had been going through cancer themselves. But really through social media, through the postings that I was doing on social media on my own account, and just kind of detailing the journey that I was going through. I was messaged by quite a few people that had either been diagnosed around the same time or were battling it themselves. And then even in over the last year, still getting messages from people that you know, have seen my story and feel like I've helped them. And so that's what I look at more than anything in, in going through this this journey that I have been on is, you know, I'm using this as a tool. I'm using this as, as a way to reach out to people and connect with them and to try to help them battle in their own lives and try to help inspire people that are really going through this, that, you know, this is not the end, you know, don't think it's the end, you know, because you can make it. And here's all the things that I did to, to get to where I am. It's so incredibly inspirational. You are such a beautiful soul Jackie is so amazing. You know, Chase is incredibly handsome. The girls are beautiful. What you've done with your family is just absolutely amazing. You guys are so beautiful inside and out. I love how much help you give to community and how you're always, you know, such an inspirational leader. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I appreciate you so much. How do our listeners find more about you and the family? Um, you can follow us on Instagram. We have our own handles, um, each one of us. Uh, mine is Kevin underscore R underscore Clements. And, uh, and that's the best way to kind of reach out and, and look. Uh, Jackie's is uh, Jackie underscore M underscore Clements. And then uh, we have the Clements twins. Uh, it's just Clements twins, just like that. And then my son has one too. His is uh, cut to this chase. I like it. He had yeah, to be different so, though. I love that. Yeah, he's got to be different. He's got to be different. He's the only boy. He's the firstborn. He's got to be a little different. It was his idea to have it that way. But yeah, please, you know, reach out. I, you know, we try to answer our direct messages all the time. And so I just want to use this platform as a way to help inspire other people and to encourage other people to, you know, live their best life and to kind of battle through these different things. And I try to share as much as my of my journey as possible to try to give other people hope that they can get through things, you know, and it's not the end of the world and that you have so much more to live. 
Thank you so much. We will link all of those into the show notes so people will be able to easily reach out to you. And thank you so much for your time and and all of your valuable information. Stephanie, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spin It. If you enjoyed the show today, then rate us five stars on Apple Podcast. To be featured on our weekly shout out, write us a review sharing why you love our show. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode again. If you want to learn more, follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y. S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E-M-A-L-I-K or visit my website, stephaniemalik.com. I'll see you all next week for another episode of Spin It. Enjoy this sneak peek of what's up next. Sky is not the limit because sky is simply a figment of our imagination. Sky doesn't exist. We create sky and we create sky because we as human mind want to see where the boundaries are. So we create these imaginary boundaries for us. I am a woman. I can only do this. That's my sky. I'm a person from India. I can only do this because that's my sky. Guess what happens when you get to that sky that you created and you realize there was nothing, there was no boundary. It was simply in your mind and you can easily go past it, right? So the point is we create these imaginary boundaries. We create the limit on ourselves to what we can achieve. And that to me is as humans, We have to believe that everything we want is possible.